Geopolitics and Empire is joined today by journalist Michael Hilliard of Australia. He's been involved in journalism since 2010 and has gone on to work from countries ranging to Iran, Russia, Ukraine, Kyrgyzstan, China, Belarus, and, and many more. He also works for various committees and think tanks in his home country of Australia, ranging from foreign policy through to Chinese electoral interference. We'll be talking today about Australian geopolitics and foreign policy, as well as the Indo-Pacific. But before I get to our guests, let me just remind listeners that we do need your help to continue to exist and grow. You can help us by subscribing to our email list, our social media channels, and donating via Patreon, PayPal, or Bitcoin. You can also leave us a podcast review. And I'd like to read one of the latest reviews from an American listener who says geopolitics and empire is more accurate than any Western corporate shill. Uh, people claiming this podcast is Russian propaganda are clearly true believers in the post-2016 Russophobic hysteria that the corporate media and national parties have used to distract the masses from their own perfidian corruption. This podcast has its limits, but it's at least free of the jingoistic ignorance that is the hallmark of most such podcasts available on Apple's platform. So we thank that uh, listener for their critical uh, review. And there you go. Now onto the podcast and welcome Michael to Geopolitics and Empire. Hey, great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, could you briefly just tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and uh, your new Redline uh, podcast? Awesome. So uh, I've been in journalism for a long time, reporting and uh, doing some ghost writing for everyone from politicians to think tanks, uh, both here and overseas, you know, reporting from uh, places like uh, Transnistria, Iran, Russia, uh Kazakhstan, your fantastic country, um, you know, all over the place. And uh, we've started this podcast called The Red Line, which what we do is we get three expert witnesses to come in and do a deep dive on one subject, you know, really dive down into into one uh, big issue. So, for instance, we've done episodes on Iran, Transistria, uh, you know, Australia's Pacific strategy, uh, you know, Kyrgyzstan, how that, uh, you know, how their decision to decide between, you know, facing towards Moscow or Beijing works. And, and the experts are, you know, CIA, MI6, uh, Harvard, Cambridge, Oxford, Chatham House, uh, you know, Obama's administration, Trump's administration, uh, Bush's administration, you know, we've had lots and lots of people on who are the experts in their field talking one-on-one -on -one with, uh, you know, about subjects that are really, really shaping the news without having that, uh, you know, we're not funded by corporate uh, corporate sponsors so we can actually dive down and we don't have any beholden uh, sponsors that are dragging something either way so we can just report straight there raw and from the front line. So kind of what we do here uh, as well on Geopolitics and Empire, we've also interviewed CIA, uh, MI6, uh, FSB, uh, academics, and so on, as well as critical and dissident thinkers. And I, I was on your uh, Iran episode, so people can go and check that out. Uh, but on so on this episode, I'd like to get a feel for what's happening in and around Australia. We haven't really covered that topic in depth ever on geopolitics and empire, so you'll be kind of introducing our listeners to that. I recently did an interview with the Filipino academic Richard Haydarian, who says that the 21st century battleground in the new Cold War between the U.S. and China is the Indo-Pacific. Uh, so you can kind of start where you like, where you think is most important, perhaps defining uh, Australia's position and strategic goals. To me, Australia is essentially, in a way, a type of a vassal state of the United States in terms of foreign policy, just as Canada uh, and Britain perhaps are. So you can start uh, where you think it's most important. So I, I think the, uh, your, your Filipino episode was absolutely correct, but I think the biggest invention we've ever seen uh, you know, that's changed lives is the shipping container. It doesn't seem like much, but because of it, it made transporting goods so much, uh, so it became very streamlined. 
you know, I can order a, you know, a, a pile of cookies from China and it will arrive in my country very cheaply and efficiently very quickly. And it internationalized trade dramatically. It shifted everyone. It almost broke down countries' dependence on, on having to manufacture and build things in their own country, you know, because, you know, if you're, let's say, a country like Hungary who has to pay their workers a fair wage and, and you know, to build cars or, or whatever, you know, now- even with the shipping costs, it's still cheaper to get it from China or Vietnam or anything. And this has made shipping lanes and shipping the most important thing ever. I mean, uh, control of shipping lanes and control of the waters is a lifeblood of every nation, particularly as nations uh, strip back their own manufacturing more and more and more and lead more to the sort of buying it from somewhere else because it is cheaper and moving to a service economy. But it means that the naval powers and the water is now far more important than forever because- you know, if you take a country like Australia, we are the only non-developed uh, nation, sorry, that uh, has a fuel supply of a 13-day reserve, which means that if we run out of fuel, like we get a fuel reserves cut, we have 13 days until we go dry in this country. That is absolutely nuts to think about that an entire developed nation will lose its entire fuel supply in two weeks if they cut just a few little choke points and then we're cut off by a navy. You know, this is why naval uh, supremacy is so incredibly important in this century. And it's why the US has put so much effort and power into, into maintaining control of the seas. Uh, and Australia, it's, you know, that is its biggest crux of the issue. We can talk a bit more about that later. Yeah, it's kind of like this uh, struggle between uh, Mackinder uh, and Mahan, and there's all this talk of the Belt and Road uh, and what's happening in, in Eurasia. And we kind of forget how important the, the, the sea lanes are. Um, and, you know, China's rapidly building up its navy and we see India now moving uh, towards that. And so one of the points that you, you sent me to, to discuss uh, are the resources uh, choke point. So uh, perhaps you can comment on that. As we talked about, so there are, Australia's in this very, very weird neighborhood where we are, you know, if you play a game of risk, you know how much of a corner we are. You know, there's not much down our way and we are effectively so beholden to every other nation. So, most of our, uh, all of our petrol comes in from Malaysia, or almost all of it anyway. Uh, most of our manufacturing comes from China or Vietnam. Uh, and because of that, and everything comes through a few choke points. So, if you look at a map of Southeast Asia, we've got just above Australia, Indonesia, which is this, you know, absolute cacophony of islands up there, uh, which it's, you know, some of these uh, choke points, our, our ships and our fuel and everything comes through are so small. You can see land on both sides. So, effectively, it would only take a few anti-ship missiles or even pirates uh, to attack our vessels and our insurance costs would go skyrocketing. You know, you only need to sink two boats and then all of a sudden insurers don't want to touch our boats or want to charge triple for the insurance and it puts the cost of everything uh, through the roof and the Australian consumer cannot handle it. We're already a very, very fragile economy. Uh, on top of that, the other choke point we have is, is the Strait of Malacca, which I'm sure you're very aware of. Uh, which is that gap between sort of uh, Malaysia and the very top bit of Indonesia. Um, and yeah, it's tiny. You know, I've been to Malacca. It's, it's, there's not a lot of gap in there. And if, you know, let's say, a US battle group or a Chinese battle group was to block it off, we have almost no more connection with, with Eurasia. Uh, and then the other one is the South China Sea. Almost everything we have manufacturing-wise comes through the South China Sea. Uh, and obviously, that is the Chinese ba uh, battleground at the moment. That is where they are increasingly gaining power. And if they could cut that off, that would 
really, really hurt Australia because we do not have reserves. We don't manufacture as much in this country anymore. Uh, and we are just so dependent on, on imports and, and stuff coming in that it would be it would break our back to even cut us off for two weeks. Uh, and that doesn't include some of the white papers um, that were coming out recently. So, for instance, in my state, I live in the, the west of the country, which is a very huge state, uh, but it's mostly mining and exports. Uh, but all our mines and stuff, all our, uh, mostly export out of about four ports uh, in this huge state. I mean, the top of my state to the bottom of my state, to give some context for your listeners, would be the distance is kind of uh, Paris to Minsk, probably a bit further, maybe even closer to Smolensk. Um, that's how big my state is. But we only got like four real deep water ports we use to get our stuff out. So even if China was to, uh, you know, let's say it was the Chinese, obviously, but if they were to go for it and dustbin, which is a small tactical nuclear weapon, or even just break some of the ships so they clog the harbour into four of our ports, it completely cuts our export, uh, you know, infrastructure out. You know, we couldn't get, we couldn't make money. This country would would break very quickly. And on top of that, we have a lot of aging infrastructure because uh, we've privatised so much of our rail network and our road networks to the point where. You know, I, I'm one of my best friends is a farmer. He lives out. He, he exports wheat and canola and that sort of stuff. Uh, and they are producing more than they can export because the railways are degradating and they're falling apart. You know, we are not ready. You know, we're fine with sailing as as it goes right now. But if something big was to come, whew, that would be that would be very very bad. Uh, and we are, you know. Yeah, not not really set up for any buffer or anything to go wrong. Even if we get blocked off, if we get cut off in a choke zone, or we get dustbinned, as as a naval person would call it, uh, we are in a very, very, very bad position. Before uh, we get into the U.S. Uh, and, and China and what's happening, I just wanted briefly for you to let us uh, in on, uh, on your feeling of of the Australian economy, because there's there seems to be a lot of bubble activity, especially with the. Uh, real estate and, and the home prices, and if you could just comment on how you feel, uh, where's the state of the Australian economy at the moment? The Australian economy is is in a terrible position. So, if you look back, you know uh, our housing. Let's start with housing. So, the housing is is god awful. So, for instance, in Sydney, which is our biggest city, uh, you can get. My friend is living in a two car garage, like a little flat. It's the size of a two car uh, car garage. It's built just on top of one. Uh, it's costing him a thousand Australian a week, which would be roughly about 800, 750 US a week uh, for a two car garage size one room flat um, because the property investors have uh, bought up the market. And what we have here in Australia, bought in by our, our very conservative government, is an is a idea called negative gearing. So if your house is losing money, you can claim it back off your tax. So it means that rich people don't have as much risk buying up huge parts of the housing market. Which means that you know it, the only people you ever see buying houses now are developers and people who are on their you know seventh or eighth house. I mean, last year alone in Australia, more people bought their seventh house than bought their first, and that should really kind of give you an idea of where our market is. Uh, because of it, it locks out you know fifty percent of, of my generation of people will never afford a home in Australia as it currently stands uh, because the housing market is just un- unattainable for us. Rents are too high. And it puts a huge bubble. Now, last time we had a, a crisis in this country, you know, was within the 08, the great crash of 08. But 
we had a good cash reserve left over from all our mining. China was still buying all of our steel. Our, our interest rates were very, very high, and we had a, a Labor government come into power, which is our very similar to the British Labor government. Um, but they came into power, and they had a great economic manager at the helm, and they actually got us through it. Australia never saw a recession. Uh, now we have a, a very, very uh, poor economic managed uh, economy by, uh, we call it the liberal government, but it's that kind of libertarian liberal. Uh, so it's effectively a conservative government uh, who has pushed up uh, the housing price, who has increased the bubble, has doubled down on it because a lot of their money comes from real estate developers. Uh, and they have, we now have no cash reserves effectively. We are uh, not in a great position that way. Uh, you know, the interest rate is already at zero effectively. And we are already seeing, you know, even in the boom times, what they call it, you know, we're already seeing int- uh, unemployment go up, you know, uh, the economy weakening and slowing down and consumer confidence down as well. Uh, you know, w- last time we went into a recession, we went in with all these, you know, all this ammunition to fight it with. We had, we could you know, lower the interest rates, we could you know, pump money into the system, we could do lots of things. And it, we lived through it. Uh, this time, we're going in with absolutely nothing. We've got no ammunition, no fuel left in the tank, uh, and there is a recession looming. We did a big piece on this uh, a few a few months ago, and we had a Harvard economist on, and he just absolutely blasted the Australian economy going, look, you guys are, are you know, such in a bad position um, that the only thing we'll have left is two cans, of, uh, two cans of beer and a bit of duct tape, and that's all that we have left in the country seems the rest of the world is in a similar position and we're all just kind of waiting for the the bubble to pop um and now to get back into the to the u.s uh, you've said that the australia follows the u.s into every war um australia is part of the five eyes uh nsa surveillance system and just recently japan apparently has joined that so now we have six eyes um australia is also part of uh, the quad group which is kind of uh, the U.S. is, if you remember, in the Cold War, we had uh, CETO, which is like, which was like the NATO for Asia, and it seems now the Quad, which includes Australia and U.S., is is a new version of, of that. And could you tell us a little bit more about Australia's uh, positioning within the U.S.? Uh, you know, now they call it the Indo-Pacific Command. Uh, you know, where does Australia fit into the U.S. foreign policy and military-industrial complex? So everything with Australian defence always relies around what's called the ANZUS Treaty. So it's a treaty between Australia, New Zealand, and the US. And effectively, it says that no matter what the US does, no matter where it goes, we will be there. We are the you know reliable little lapdog of the US, and we will follow it into whatever conflict the US wants to go into. Even even in this recent round of Iran tensions, when the US was you know uh, hyping up. Yeah, tensions with Iran. Australia, our prime minister was committing to you know uh, uh, putting boats in, and they were going to send one of our uh, tiny little naval boats out there just to prove that Australia has got the back of the US. And that again comes down to uh, completely down to our, our naval reliance. You know, we're in this very very weird position where almost all of our economic stuff comes from China. China is our biggest. Uh, economic partner. It buys most of our minerals. It gives most of the country. It's one of our largest investors in infrastructure and, and housing. Uh, we have very, very deep economic times with Beijing. Uh, but we also know that if push was to come to shove and we have to pick a side, the US can cut those four choke points because it does have naval supremacy in the area. And it doesn't matter if China wants to buy all their stuff, they just won't be able to. So, effectively, we have that decision of do we side with China, who is our economic partner and is our regional, 
you know, is kind of the regional power uh, as it would be in this neighborhood or but we can get cut off at any point by the US or do we side with the US who don't buy a lot from us, don't support us economically very much, but at least would guarantee that our waters were free to navigate and we could try and trade with everyone around the area, whether that be uh, India, we do a little bit with Indonesia, but not a great amount. Uh, but again, it would be, you know, devastating economically and it would be what was left of Australia's economy would be there to back up the US. Uh, we do most of the US's dirty work in the Pacific as well, uh, particularly Fiji, Vanuatu, uh, you know, those kind of like nations. We are, you know, we're the big fellas in that small pond. And I say small pond when I refer to the Pacific here. Uh, <laughs> um, but yes, we effectively do the, the US's dirty work in in, uh, in the Pacific. Um, but that's the big conundrum in Australia. You know, you for every, every foreign policy council is, do we commit further to China because, frankly, that's where the money is and then we need the money and we're desperate for the money because our economy's not doing so well? Or do we side with the United States, which guarantees us that if anything goes wrong, we have someone to defend us, but not economically? And I want to look at the the fears uh, of, in Australia of China and, and you know, the, the Chinese empire that, that's rising. And, you know, let's not fool ourselves. Every country on the planet, whether it's the US, European countries, or Russia, or, or China, or, or Australia, all are involved in, in espionage, and I think to different degrees, election interference, um, and, and you know, cyber hacking, and, and, and this sort of stuff. But to, to, if you can tell us what's been happening in, in Australia recently, because you know, the Chinese have been buying up, uh, I suppose, a lot of uh, property in Australia. There's, there have been talks of Chinese infiltrating the academia, universities, uh, Chinese election interference, interference in the Australian uh, uh, elections. Uh, you know they're buying uh, your a lot of the Australian resources. So, can you tell us, you know, what's what's the fear, uh, what's the damage that China can do uh, to Australia? I mean, if we go further over the years, I mean, will will they have uh, will they be able to manipulate Australian politics? So, can you tell us a little bit about this? So Chinese influence is, is there's some things I can talk about and some things that I, I'm not allowed to talk about. Um, but Chinese influence is creeping in Australia now. What we usually find looking at Chinese electoral interference is they like to try it in their backyard first. So Kyrgyzstan often cops that. Uh, you know they'll try out some ideas and, and run it as a bit of a, a boiling pot in Kyrgyzstan, and then we get the boiling point of of testing things out and how they run in Western nations before they go try it in you know the United States or Europe or something of that variety. So China, the Chinese do a lot of their influence comes from money. So, for instance, our universities always capitulate uh, to Chinese demands because of the fact that uh, we have so many international students here who pay four, five, six, seven, eight times the amount of money that a regular student does. So, someone like a uh, University of New South Wales or University of Queensland or these kind of guys are so reliant on Chinese and, to a lesser extent, Indian money coming in. Uh, that, for instance, right now when the coronavirus is kicking in and a lot of our Chinese students can't make it and, uh, and join for this next year's intake, you know, they're already projecting dramatic losses of profit because they don't have that money coming in. Now, they also have openly tried to buy a number of our politicians. So, there was a big scandal here where a Chinese spy got caught uh, and saying that, you know, he was being offered, the Chinese said they would give him a million dollars towards his campaign to run for the Conservative Party. Uh, and that they would support him and they would do ads and everything else for him. He said no. Uh, and then two weeks later, Gladys Liu, who runs a seat in Melbourne, uh, she 
all of a sudden pops up with this huge million dollar campaign and runs and has the Chinese support and does the you know, little things like running electoral ads and posters in Chinese that are the same colors as our uh, kind of state electoral board. Um, so it's, you know, telling people this is how the, the correct way to vote is to, to vote conservative in Chinese at electoral sites. You know, there's a lot of little hinky things like that. And even when she was openly caught and there was, you know, even ASIO was kind of hinting, yeah, yeah, she's probably working for Beijing. Uh, our conservative government stood by it because we need that Chinese money coming in. It's so we're so reliant on it for our economy uh, that you know we don't really call the Chinese out when they need to. Now a lot of it is hysteria. So for instance, we had a, a mining magnate who in the last election who talked about this Chinese airfield they're going to invade us from in the north. When it turned out that he actually owned the airfield, it was insane. Um, and a lot of people, you know, uh, oh. Older generation are worried that China is going to invade us and China will land and occupy us when every single white paper indicates that that would be just more trouble than it's worth. You know, China is far better at just buying large stakes in our mining companies, you know, by uh, buying up politicians with money so that they can effectively get uh, bits of legislation through. So, for instance, they got the what used to be called our 457 visa program through, which is a program that lets Chinese workers work in Australia for, you know, for... Uh, much cheaper wages than Australians get, uh, and they effectively can be deported rather than charged if need be. There's a lot more to that legislation than I've just indicated, but you know it was paid for by China and uh, and Citic and a few other companies managed to push it through the Australian Parliament. Uh, China buys a lot of ads and a lot of ad space, uh, as well as uses. There's indications that they're using a lot of uh, surveillance technology to feed uh, opposition research to certain uh, parties. And so, you know, a, a question that I ask most of my guests is, uh, you know, with their thoughts uh, and what they're hearing from where, where they're working and where they are, uh, are, are the potential for, you know, another world war, a World War III uh, kind of situation. We see what's happening around the world. There's this militarization, Navy buildup. Uh, you've got the South China Sea, uh, you know, hotspots, flashpoints, um, Taiwan, North Korea. Uh, the Middle East. Uh, and so, you know, wh what's the talk or fear in Australia of if, if this US-China conflict, you know, if now we're at this currency war, economic war, trade war, information war, uh, cyber war, but if it goes hot, um, I mean, are there fears of a large-scale military conflict and, and, or the, and the potential consequences of that and what Australia would do in that situation? God, yes. I mean, every very foreign policy meeting is worried because we are, you know, what's interesting to look at, it, particularly with the US, and is what they're buying. So, for instance, you know, 30 years ago, the US was buying a lot of counterinsurgency equipment, a lot of radio jammers, a lot of small arms, a lot of, you know, just a lot of to fight, you know, fight ISIS and fight those sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know Taliban terrorists in the hills. But right now, both the US, Russia, and China are buying large amounts of conventional warfare stuff. I'm talking great power versus great power stuff. You know, the, we've been talking about upgrading our nuclear uh, forces. When you know, why would you upgrade nuclear forces if you're only anticipating fighting, you know, uh, uh, religious extremists in certain countries? Uh, Australia knows that if war was to break out, we won't be the one to start it. I mean, no one really, you know, worries that Australia is going to start a war, but we will follow the US in. Uh, and we will wave our flag very high as our economy collapses within two weeks. Um, you know, that's probably a little dramatic, but we will see huge hits. I mean, right now, to give you an idea uh, on our, how fragile our petrol prices are over here, 
when the Yemen, when a Houthi rebel struck a Saudi oil facility, uh, you know, we don't even get much oil from Saudi Arabia. You get all ours of uh, ours out of Malaysia usually. Uh, the our, our petrol price though went up 14 cents a liter uh, just overnight, just on a random strike in Saudi Arabia. I mean, God help us if a real war breaks out because petrol will become, you know, the last economist I spoke to about this, he was indicating through a three. Dollars fifty, five dollars, eight dollars a liter, depending on how far into this conflict we get. But we will run out of resources very, very quickly, uh, and we will be dragged in. And we don't have a great conventional fight. You know, I, I say that our armed forces are, are fantastic and they're very well equipped, and our equipment's good. But we're very, very small. And most of our stuff is designed to uh, small strikes, you know, or protecting our immediate neighbourhood. Uh, so. You know, we could fight off small things as they come through choke points, uh, but or just small incursions. You know, protecting bases in Afghanistan or operations in, uh, you know, various Middle Eastern countries. Uh, but no, if a war breaks out, Australia will economically feel the pinch very, very, very quickly. Um, you know, and a lot of the time, you know, when war breaks out, there's months of mobilisation and there's months of of getting ready for it and going for it. And I think Australia would barely have an economy by the time the the uh, the guns start firing. And what other uh, issues uh, would you like to mention that are uh, on your mind uh, and on the minds of the folks in the Australian government uh, that you feel are, are important right now to, to bring up? So, obviously, there's, there's a few big uh, problems that Australia is always looking at. So, uh, with climate change is going to be a huge one for us. I mean, already you would have, everyone in the world has seen these, uh, these bushfires that just ravaged Australia, caused billions of dollars of damage. You know, we have the uh, the uh, enough um, you know conglomeration of land the size of Ireland just burned down. You know, just over the space of about, you know two months. Uh, particularly, there was a, a, big, a three week patch there. It was absolutely horrific. But in three months, the size of Ireland just burnt down this country, uh, and that's only going to get worse. You know, we are uh, particularly there's our conservative government is. I don't want to sound like I'm too political here, but our conservative government has been doing things like selling off our water supplies. Uh, to foreign investors, uh, you know, we all blame China, but for instance, in Dubbo, uh, a rural town uh, in New South Wales, one of our one of our most popular states, uh, they sold off the water supplies to Coca Cola Amatol, uh, to which Coca Cola then, during the crisis, sold it back to the government at a very very high profit uh, in exchange for donating some money to uh, the Conservative and the Nationals uh, campaigns over here. I mean, we. When climate change starts to really, really bite, it's going to hurt us because we've already having towns that are running out of water and it's having to get it pumped in from other places. Uh, we are going to see, you know, in the space of one week here, we had floods, bushfires, uh, a cyclone and hail all within one week in this country. You know, the weather is starting to get worse and we are, you know, it's, you know, every military guy would refer to it not as a, a problem creator, but a problem multiplier. Um, you know, what would be, you know, what we, the problems we have with economic refugees right now are going to get a lot worse when, for instance, the floodwaters in Bangladesh rise because in that neighbourhood, the pace that they're going to go searching for, you know, some stability and a better life is Australia. And I, again, I'm not saying I'm against that, but I'm just saying that, you know, if we think that's a problem now with climate change ramping up, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And that just, you know, down the road, it's going to be problematic. All right. A any final thoughts for us, uh, concluding thoughts, whether on Australia, the new Cold War, the Indo-Pacific foreign policy? 
So I think, you know, my main focus is, is the Indian Ocean. And I think that's where we all need to keep our eyes peeled uh, for what's happening. I mean, we all know what's happening in the South China Sea, but the old uh, the old naval proverb goes, if you park a battleship in front of someone, they do not notice the aircraft carrier behind them. Uh, and I think that's going to be the main thing. China is already making some moves in, in the Indian Ocean. You know, they pr- practically have India surrounded right now, and we're not really doing anything to side with India, even though... You know, it could be a good strategic partner against China. You know, we could build that up to be the counterbalance in the continent, but we're really not doing enough in that region. Plus, you know, I've, the thing that keeps me up at night and is watching the, you know, the tensions between Pakistan and India, knowing that if that goes south, you know, if that really, really cattles off, uh, you know, that's two nuclear powers who I think would probably be the most likely to push the button. Um, and if they push the button, that's... That's going to be real rough because there's a little bunch of alliances tied in and, you know, one man gets shot in Serbia and we go to war in 1914. I don't know what would happen if we if we started shooting off nukes in, you know, 2022 in Kashmir. Um, but that would be definitely a place I would be keeping my eye on. But Australia is, is, you know, in this weird position where climate change is getting worse. You know, our position in the Pacific is being threatened. Uh, you know, China is making further and further inclusions. I mean, right now, China is already getting ready for the Bougainville independence. Uh, you know, their generals and their foreign officers being seen, uh, you know, already donating money to the generals who are likely to take over the presidency, uh, you know, which is an unsinkable aircraft carrier, very, very close to Australian waters. Uh, and we are not doing anything about it. Our, our conservative government particularly has buried their head in the sand and they are not uh, not anticipating anything, anything to do with climate change. They're not getting ready for the fact that cyber warfare is increasingly bad uh, and is increasingly going to be putting pressure on Australia and that the US, you know, may not defend us. Uh, I'm not going to give a position on Trump, but, you know, I, he, he's very erratic. You know, he's already, he had a, uh, a call with our ex-prime minister um, where he got his name wrong and called him Trumbull rather than Turnbull, uh, which is very funny. But, you know, he was very curt with him and I don't know... I think we would always defend the US, but I don't know if they would always defend us. Um, and I think we are in a neighborhood where we're surrounded by people who, you know, we can pretend will love us and we handshake and we have lots of, you know, uh, photos holding flags and we shake hands. But when things get muddy, I don't know if any of these guys are going to back us up. And we are increasingly isolated in a country where we have 20 million people, you know, over a space the size of Europe, you know, with a lot of resources at stake. I, yeah, I worry for what Australia is doing and I don't think we're doing enough to prepare for it. Well, as that old Chinese uh, proverb says, uh, may you live in interesting times. And indeed, these are quite interesting times. Where are the best places people can find you online? I know you're on Twitter and you have your podcast uh, website, if you'd like to mention them. Yeah, so you can always find the red line on, on most of your yeah, standard podcasting sites, so, you know, uh, Spotify and Apple and Podbean and all those sort of ones. You can find me on Twitter at Mike Hilliard Oz, um, and you can follow the Red Line at the Red Line Pod uh, on Twitter as well. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and uh, Instagram and all the fun stuff as well. Uh, and you can always just tweet at me and ask questions and whatnot. But yeah, no, it's uh, it's honestly been great to be on the show, and thank you so much for having me. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I definitely don't view podcasting as some kind of a, a competition. <laughs> I think we should all be friendly and, and collabor- collaborate. And I do urge listeners to check out uh, the Redline podcast because it's kind of a, a, a new twist. It's interesting because you have not one, not two, but 
three guest experts uh, on each episode, and they're about 45 minutes, and each, I think, guest gets to speak 10 or, or 15 minutes. You guys really cut it down to the key points that the experts uh, want to make, so it's it's a high-quality uh, podcast. And so uh, thank you, Michael, for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Awesome. And if you are going to check out any episode, I'd check out an Iran episode because uh, Hervoyer is on it as well, and he gives an absolutely fantastic talk about Iran and uh, you know how the how the US got to this tension point. And uh, I think his his uh, his work on that episode was absolutely fantastic. I hope you enjoyed this geopolitics and empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.